0: Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental.
1: Hello and welcome to the show. Today, we'll continue our coverage of Mary Church Terrell, who was an activist, author, and suffragist. We recommend that you go back and listen to part one of her story. But to summarize, both of Mary's parents had been enslaved people who had worked hard to build businesses and amass significant fortunes mary therefore grew up with every material luxury and also an extensive education that was rare enough For any woman of her day, but nearly unheard
2: of for a woman of color. She became a teacher and then she married a lawyer whose name was Robert Terrell and turned her energy into helping form organizations to help colored women, primarily the National Association of Colored Women that was a group designed to help African-Americans through education and community support. That was getting her life of activism going. She was the first African-American woman to serve on the Board of Education for Washington, D.C. She was a popular lecturer, writer, and when we left her, she was standing on a stage with Susan B. Anthony. She had just given a fiery speech
1: called The Progress of Colored Women on the Occasion of the 50th Anniversary of Seneca Falls in front of an audience of white people to great acclaim. This opportunity had come to her because she stood up out of turn in a previous meeting and called them on having excluded colored women from their proposals. So, As the Satellite Sisters podcast says, stay noisy. (laughs) It works. So now we are all caught up and let's proceed with the rest of her story.
2: Mary is 34 years old. She and Robert have been married for almost eight years. Although they had three miscarriages in five years, they were still trying to have a family. What we didn't know in the last episode is that when she was standing on that stage to that thunderous applause, she was seven months pregnant. How exciting! So we are happy to
1: report that little Phyllis Terrell was born healthy and happy at last. Oh, happy day. Phyllis was named after Phyllis Wheatley, who was an enslaved woman published poet, much beloved of royalty, and the subject of episode 119 of our podcast. We will give you a link. Mary Terrell, through her connections to Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, the various colored women's organizations throughout the country, her lectures and articles, and her association with Susan B. Anthony, was... Uh, two degrees of Kevin Bacon, if you know what I mean, (laughs) from anyone who was anyone in the United States, even the president. And I find it completely strange how little she is known these days, because during her time on
2: Earth, she was so well known. Mm hmm. I did, too. Even at this point in her story, because of her uh, appearance on that stage, her speaking tour, which had already been extremely popular, was just elevated to another level of demand for her to come and speak to different organizations all over the country. Not only nationally,
1: she has taken it global. She was invited to speak at the International Congress of Women in Berlin. Now, finances were a bit of trouble. But Papa, the candy man, <laughs> gave her the money for the trip. And she got a room, I guess they call it a berth. I don't know my nautical terminology, on a German steamer. Cabin. Just, oh, is it? Okay. What's I a berth then? Is that third birth class? A berth is the
2: actual bed. The berth is the bed. Well, she also got a berth. She got a berth yeah, and she, a cabin. She,
1: <laughs> <laughs> she got all kinds of stuff. On her way, she rolled out all her old German you know, she was speaking to the crew in German, she was speaking to the passengers in German. A little immersion is super fun. It's two weeks to get across the ocean at this time, you know, and you can get there now in what is it, a eight and a half hour flight? It's progress. So by the time she got there, she was primed, I think, for her new location. And there was a group of reporters gathered on the dock. And they had been like accosting all of the Americans. And I don't know how to put this any other way, but they were asking, where is the Negress? That's (laughs) the Negerin is what they called her Um, terminology, man. I don't know what to say, but they they kept asking people, where is she? Where is she? And then Mary came down the gangplank and hooray. She spoke German to a crew member. Hooray. And so, ma'am, ma'am, where's the Negress? (laughs) says Mary. (laughs) Maybe she's still on board. (laughs) I wish you'd give her a message. We wish to interview her for our newspaper. (laughs) Mary wondered, what on earth are you expecting? I know. You know, what on earth? But at least her fame had preceded her. If not her photograph. (laughs) So the German delegates were upset that the English and American speakers hadn't bothered to have their speeches translated into German. They told Mary, I would never have done that to them when the conference was in London. We did not just go and talk for 30 minutes in German. What sense does that make? No one in the audience would have understood me. And here they are. It's just presumptuous, I think. We would never do that. And then Mary realized, like, you know, they yeah. right. That's not good. She spent two days working on a translation of her speech. She was very concerned with grammar, you know, in a way that you aren't. Mm-hmm. Maybe when you're talking to someone on the dock, she took it to a professional translator. She didn't sleep for two days getting this done. But she <laughs> said, I felt then, as I feel now, no amount of trouble and toil is too great to be undertaken and endured in behalf of a cause to which one has dedicated her ability and consecrated her powers. So she was willing to sacrifice for the greater good
2: and to make sure her audience understood her. So when it was time for her to give her speeches, she gave them in English and in German and in another instance, also in French. There's her education paying off right there at the conference. Her
1: speech was entitled, Progress and Problems of Colored Women, and it talked about the race problem of the United States, and it was received to a standing ovation. She had three curtain calls. There was no curtain, but they called her back three (laughs) times. Um, They wanted her back, and she was considered to be a high point of that conference.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And even in her time while she was over there, um, she, again, just like when she had gone on her grand tour when she was younger, she was invited everywhere. She and Susan B. Anthony were invited to parties and receptions. They met with dignitaries. It was nothing like her treatment in America. She was just another delegate in Europe. Right. 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 Like, yeah.
1: And not defined by the color of her skin or some kind of perceived inferiority because of her ancestry. Mm -hmm. Well, her social events in England were stellar. Then she went back to her old stomping grounds in Paris for 10 days on the way home, just like you do. (laughs) And she was just so comfortable there. How I love the French, she said. Later, people like Josephine Baker would find the same thing is true, that the French were very, very welcoming to Americans abroad, regardless of the color of their skin. So now she is one degree of separation from nobility and power players all over Europe. Mary Terrell took I know a guy now to a new level. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before she had left to go to this conference, she had been shocked to read in the paper an article sort of justifying the practice of lynching that was written by a man named Mr. Page. His contention was, well, all those violent Negroes, what are you supposed to do? not cool. And she wrote a scathing rebuttal of that piece. And while she was still abroad, her husband contacted her and sent her the news that the North American Review had agreed to publish her piece. It was called Lynching from a Negro's Point of View.
2: It was the first time that she was paid for her work. And she was paid $75, which in today's money is about $2,000, which if I wrote a piece for $2,000, I'd be very happy. (laughs) Right. And she was finally published on on a national magazine under her own name. In this piece, there were graphic
1: descriptions of the process of lynching. There was a mention of rape without euphemisms. Also the following sentiment. When men know that the death knell of their aspirations will be sounded as soon as they express views that are opposite to their neighbors, they suppress their views. Only martyrs are bold enough to defy the public will, and the manufacture of martyrs on the Negro's behalf is not very brisk right now. She has a very modern way of putting things, I mm-hmm. think. People are not ready for this kind of prime time, I'm thinking. But no. um, there's not a lot of flowers in her language,
2: like was very common at the time for women writers.
1: Yes. She points out the hatred and lawlessness, and frankly, the glee toward violence upon people of color of the best citizens of America and the silence of, quote, good Christians about the issue of lynching. She has decided to ruffle a lot of feathers, and we'll post a link to the whole thing. It's long and thorough and takes no prisoners, frankly. <laughs> her husband was very, very happy about the reception, about that this came out of his wife's brain. He wrote, Darling wife, 1,000 congratulations on your success with the review. And upon her return to America, she was greeted as a conquering hero by friends, acquaintances, reformers. She was called the greatest woman that we have. Frederick Douglass's son, the one who once shamed her for making jelly, said that article is a masterpiece. You are a triumph
2: for the entire Negro race. And then even though she's being described as that, when she got off the boat in Delaware to take the train back home to Maryland, she was again put in the Jim Crow car. So she's getting all this press for being so brilliant And she's still relegated to a substandard living just because of the color of her skin. Does that sound
1: weird? No. Well, it does sound weird. It sounds shameful, in fact. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can imagine a fair amount of eyebrow raising in the white population from (sighs) this article. Um, Where's the decorum, they said. And she's like, where is our equality more like? You know, since the end of the Civil War, laws had been passed all over the South to prevent former slaves from owning property, from free movement even, which sounds like slavery, from education. There were laws passed that you were not allowed to send children of color to school past the fourth grade. Now, if that is not purposely um, hobbling an entire population for generations, I don't know what is. This whole Jim Crow situation was only growing more acute.
2: Years before, there had been a very famous case called Plessy versus Ferguson.
1: We did have this one in history
2: class, by the way. (laughs) like occasionally we'll come across one like, oh, yeah. In this particular case, a black man had gotten on a train and sat in the whites only car. He was told to go sit in the Jim Crow car and he refused and was arrested. Then began a long legal battle that eventually wound its way to the Supreme Court. In the Plessy versus Ferguson case, constitutionally upheld racial segregation. It took four years to get through the courts, despite the 14th Amendment saying that no state could enact any laws that took away rights and privileges of any citizen the Supreme Court said, yeah, but that particular amendment only applies to political or civil rights, not social ones like interstate railroad travel. And it was perfectly reasonable to maintain peace and good order to continue to have Jim Crow cars. And that set a legal precedent to have Jim Crow laws be legal all across the board. So
1: you might also know this as the policy of separate but equal. And so you... And I both know that separate and equal means separate and not equal. And now the whole thing had this halo of its... It's legal and proper and correct for us to demand that
2: you use a different bathroom. And if anybody knew that it was separate and not equal, it was Mary because she would often sit in the white cars on trains and get, you know, and get away with it, I guess, which is horrible to say. But she knew that in the Jim Crow cars, because she was often sent back to them, that she wasn't going to get the same kind of treatment, the basic cleanliness or ventilation or food available. She said after one trip in a Jim Crow car, I had a rest night considering the kind of car in which I rode. She knew the difference.
1: Sometimes, and Mary would have acknowledged this, she received treatment, which according to society, she was not entitled to because of the lightness of her complexion. And when accused of, quote, passing, oh, is that a loaded word? And I'm not even sure That I, as a white person, should even go into this. It is very fraught. We'll provide you, perhaps, a link to someone more authorized to talk about such issues. Her perception was, it's not my responsibility to educate fools. You know, (laughs) if they are mistaken, that's on them. Yeah.
2: I mean, isn't that a great way to just look at life? It's not my <laughs> responsibility to educate fools. But I think it's interesting that you're comparing the privilege of Mary. That's the same privilege that we, you and I have. Yes. and she, she had little tastes of it. And she realized, just like you and I would, that that's why. There's no reason for it. It's totally <laughs> random. Yeah. And it exists. You have yes. to acknowledge that. Yeah. So there were
1: sort of two schools of thought within the activist community on how to move forward with civil rights. Was it persuasion and gentle education as advocated by Booker T. Washington? Or was it being squeaky wheels and demanding that white America recognize the equality of people of color like W.E.B. Du Bois?
2: W.E.B. Du Bois was an activist. He was a writer. He was the first black man to get a Ph.D. from Harvard. And he was exactly the opposite of thought to the Booker T. Washingtons. Mary was considered like Booker T. Washington. She looked up to him. He was kind of a mentor of hers. And so she was of the let's play within the system. Let's not rock any boats because if you don't rock the boat, it will float. And W.E.B. Du Bois was kind of the opposite. Like, let's rock this boat and see we can get something happening.
1: So, yeah, his philosophy was, and I quote, persistent manly agitation is the way to victory manly. Yes, black women had two, two sections of the populace dismissing their participation in humanity. Nonetheless, pressing on was her only solution. Husband Robert was firmly in the Booker T category. His work, his judgeships were dependent on working together with officials and presidents and not angering the people in power. His wife was slowly switching sides over to the Du Bois camp, and he couldn't afford that. It reflected on him. Their differing philosophies began to cause a rift in their marriage
2: because he had to be confirmed in his job by the Senate. So there are stresses, but Robert is kind of helping her on the inside. He's reading her papers for her. He's reading her speeches. He isn't rocking the boat. Like she is, but I think he's still getting his voice heard through her, which is kind of an interesting twist, since that's what, (laughs) because that's what the people who didn't want women to get the vote said. Well, women, you can get your voice heard through your husband, and so in this case, Robert's voice was kind of being heard through his wife. Maybe she
1: was able to say the things that he could not say. Mm -hmm. To a point. To a point. More on that later. So, personally, family note: it's unclear exactly why. But Mary's niece, named Mary (laughs) Mm -hmm. after her, fair enough, age 11, came to live with the family this year. And you'll read that she had two daughters. So, day to day, you're touching me, you're on my side. She did. Yes, she had two daughters. Mm
2: -hmm. Did you find out any reason why she came to live with them? Well, I
1: don't know. The only thing I can think of, um, I mean, she only had the one brother. Mm -hmm. and he is perfectly capable and and becomes later on a a high official in the NAACP. The only thing I can think of is perhaps his wife died.
2: Oh, maybe. Yeah, it um, definitely was Thomas's daughter. There's no question about that. And in her journals, all she said was, quote, so that's settled. Whether it's not for the best remains to be seen.
1: (laughs) Well, it is a big commitment to take another child on, especially one that's older than
2: your own child, Mhm yeah she was 4 years older and Phyllis this is so cute Phyllis was actually going to speeches with her this is another working mom here and sometimes she takes her daughter with her on these speaking tours <laughs> There's a couple of times remember that video of
1: the um <laughs> that BBC reporter that's like trying to hold this <laughs> press conference and his little daughter's like doop 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 and the wife comes in on her hands and knees and like pulls the child out There were a couple of times that she's like uh, Phyllis is walking around up front sticking her finger up her nose doop de doop not really
2: helping.
0: Oh uh, my 2-year-old
2: got away from us at a funeral once and doop de duped all the way up to the altar. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trapped in the middle of the pew. I had the coffin to my left and a whole row of people to my right. I couldn't go anywhere. My mother-in-law was supposed to be watching her.
1: I like how you used it as a verb. She doop de dooped all the way up. <laughs> Well, so, working moms, you'll understand (laughs) her (laughs) stress, and more stress, uh, financial as well. Some things you'll read suggest that Mary's lectures were what were keeping them afloat. This is a far cry from Papa, you know, making it rain cash, money, and candy during her childhood, and she didn't expect that, I don't think, but money is a big stress point in a marriage, and Hers was getting stressed out. Societal expectations of a of a wife and mother were not helping either, I think. So she's feeling kind of pulled in a lot of different directions. And I'm very sorry to hear that. But Mary had large fish to fry. Suddenly, something alarming had happened in Brownsville, Texas. Riots and violence broke out, supposedly due to black soldiers going on some sort of rampage with their guns. And then the white population retaliated. Even though their commanding officer vouched For the soldiers' whereabouts, President Roosevelt, this is Teddy, gave dishonorable discharges to three whole companies of black soldiers because they had refused to rat on the people who were responsible. Now, there aren't any people responsible, so how can they rat on them? He stripped them of their pensions. He stripped them of any possibility of military service. And how about this? Forbade them from ever working in government service again. No, not even as mail carriers. All of this with no trial, no witnesses, a refusal to examine the evidence. And I am shocked by this, but it was in Teddy Roosevelt's interest to smooth over his relationship with whites in the South. Some of these men had served in the military for over 20 years and suddenly... You're out. You're gone. Mary was contacted by a man named Mr. Milholland, a multimillionaire. We met in England, ma'am, he says. Okay. (laughs) Multimillionaire. You met in England who asked her, please, would you go over to the State Department and talk to the president's chief of the War Department? Uh, He's a man named Taft. Not yet president. Spoiler alert. (laughs) He's the son of a justice. I I think he's going to sniff this unfairness and And surely you can make him see the injustice here. And how much influence, I ask you, do you have to have when millionaires (laughs) beg you to use your personal power at the White House? Mm -hmm. Do you know? I'm just amazed by this. So she goes over there. And of course, the gatekeepers are all like, no, no, no. But finally, he agreed to see her and listen to her. And ultimately, after trying to get you know, under her skin, he agreed she had a point. And he agreed to send a telegram to the out of the country president recommending delay until further investigation. PR reasons, you know, sir. And Taft ordered a halt to further action on this. No further action, discharges, you know, until I get an answer from the president. And Mary's intervention was successful and became public. And someone wrote to her in a telegram You have not lived in vain. That's something. I mean, as far as they knew, Mary's intervention had made all the difference. Unfortunately, Teddy Roosevelt was super, uh, let's say, tart Mm -hmm. (laughs) about being questioned. And despite the best efforts of the likes of Mr. Taft and Booker T. Washington and his supporters, the order went ahead. Much to the disgust and dismay of the W.E.B. Du Bois crowd, including Mary, who were not shy about their disappointment in this president. He had betrayed the trust that the educated Black American community had placed in him as far as they were concerned.
2: So Mary had gone behind Roosevelt's back to get things changed. I can't imagine that that didn't trickle down to Robert in some way, even if it was just stress or perhaps overuse of. On his desk, he had a bone china globe. And when you open the top, there was a little bottle of bourbon and a couple of glasses. So perhaps the only thing it did was make him reach for his globe. (laughs) But Um, I can't imagine that it didn't, you know, trickle down to him somehow. This definitely added to the friction at home.
1: Of all the 160 some men that were affected by this, I'm sorry to say that only 14 men were restored to active service. And in 19... Seventy-two people concluded that the soldiers were innocent of all charges. No one had looked at the evidence properly, and they gave honorable discharges to everyone who were dead. Mm-hmm. And the very, very last survivor, the only one left in 1972, finally received his pension for what that's worth, which is nearly nothing. Mary continued to write articles for major publications, both black and white, in the United States and England, getting more and more frustrated with the slow pace of success of the civil rights movement. Readers of serious articles about the race question are limited, said the people in the movement. You know, most people don't sit down and have a big heapin' helping of social justice for breakfast, <laughs> which is still true. And they said, you know what we need? What we need is another Uncle Tom's cabin. Harriet Beecher Stowe's book about slavery had helped to kind of um, change northern perceptions about slavery, and it changed society. If only they had another story like that modernized for our current situation. Of course, the editors of Her Acquaintance said, nobody is ever going to publish that these days. The times are different. Are they? How sad that they think slash know that times are more fraught than the Civil War time, you know, Mm -hmm. race relations wise. Um, One of the biggest disappointments of her entire life was that she could not pull this off. Her one foray into fiction was a dismal flop as far as she was concerned. And somehow her her creativity didn't run that way. Or I can also see she had a lot going on and maybe she would have benefited from a writer's retreat or five minutes of peace in a row.
2: <laughs> I can tell you that if you're writing nonfiction all the time and you turn to fiction, it's a totally, your brain works totally different ways. So I... I understand it and I understand her frustration.
1: So this is a quote from her autobiography. If I had lived in a literary atmosphere or if my time had not been so completely occupied with public work of many varieties, I might have gratified my desire to tell the world a few things I wanted it to know. I do not regret the time and energy consumed in serving others, but I cannot help wondering whether I might not have succeeded as a short story writer or a novelist if my conditions had been more conducive
2: to the kind of literary work I so longed to do. Maybe I can show Black America as they really are, is what she wanted to do. And she could do that theoretically in fiction and in her activism, but she just never was able to make that leap. Well, the work she was doing was having an effect
1: and getting more uh shall we say matter of fact and friends warned her not to be so blunt about things maybe a euphemism or two about specific injustices and she said i felt i could not be true to myself or my race if i did not tell the truth about the barbarities perpetuated on members of my race she was constantly hit with the fact that well-meaning white audiences thought things had been pretty well fixed up after the civil war Mm -hmm. And she said, colored people so rarely tell certain truths about the conditions which concern their race that when they do, even white people who are interested in them feel that they must just be bitter. Ripped from the headlines of 2020, Mary Terrell. Mm -hmm. She is like a time traveler. Well, some articles she published about white allies abandoning black Americans and some pointed insults about the South got too pointed for people.
2: Mary had gone up to Battle Creek, Michigan to speak at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. You know, Dr. John Kellogg, the holistic medicine guy, the cornerstone of the serial empire. So that, that's John Kellogg. <laughs> what
1: is the movie with Jane Fonda? Not Jane Fonda, Bridget Fonda. <gasps> I, Do you remember that? The Road to Wellsville is yes. all about them.
2: Yes, it was. Oh, I. you know what? That movie, I think I liked it because it's still in my head. Whenever I see that name, you know, the Kellogg, the sanitarium, that's what I think of is that movie.
1: All I remember is that they had people stick their feet in water and then electrified them. Yeah. And I remember thinking, that? can't be good.
2: <laughs> well, this particular gathering was the National Purity Federation. It was a couple days of speeches on physical purity before Mary gave hers. So, here's all these people talking about purity of our souls and Mary gets up and does her speech about the progress of the black woman. And she makes some points in her speech that were very different than any of the other speeches that people were hearing. So it stood out at several points in her speeches. She pointed out that black women and girls are often used as objects to southern white men's carnal desires. And that was quickly turned to Negro speaker assails women of the South. (laughs) Well,
1: and I'm I'm sorry to say that the black press turned on her. And I quote, Mary Terrell always gives speeches full of hot air from a safe distance. And brace yourself for this one. And this is from the Black Press. Quote, and if these bleached colored Americans who are roaming all over the country would cease trying to pass for white, there would not be any excuse for this tirade against the South. Excuse me, what is happening?
2: Mary tried to do some spin control, but it wasn't very successful. She said that she had been misquoted and she said, no black servant girl is safe in a southern white home. She actually said that. And in the context of her speech, she was trying to convey that it happened in many homes, but not every home. And the press just grabbed onto that sentence. So you'll see that quote attributed to her. And she kind of said it, but she tried her very best. To pull it back and, you know, spin it around, but was pretty unsuccessful. So it's kind of like a Twitter misstep because you can't erase the Twitter and you can't
1: seem to erase the anger of people who hear you say a thing like that. I think Mary Terrell experienced a um, Twitterati retribution long Mm. before it was a thing.
0: Let me ask you this, is your bra designed to fit you? 3rd Love bras are. They're designed with measurements from millions of women who've taken their Fit Finder quiz. Their bra styles are made to fit our lives. They have over 80 sizes, but 3rd Love knows that the only one that matters is yours. 3rd Love concentrates on the details. Every bra is made for comfort with memory foam cups, no slip straps, and a scratch-free band. I've been talking about how much I love 3rd Love bras for years now, but I've ventured beyond the bras at 3rd Love and recently got an organic cotton jogger set and a seamless lounge bra. These are the soft pajamas that if I'm wearing them and a neighbor comes to the door, I don't mind opening it. And that lounge bra, it's wireless, it's comfortable enough to sleep in, and it has an extra padded hook and eye band. Details matter. You know what also matters to Third Love is that you find the bra that's perfect for you. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's Third Love, spell it out, T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 15% off today.
1: So the black press took a step back from old Mary Terrell. Uh, They needed a little bit of a break. And husband Robert took a step back, too. He could not afford to rock the boat if he wanted to keep his appointment as judge. And here his wife's inflammatory remarks are splashed all over for Southern congressmen to read, congressmen who would vote against him, maybe. And this was still an era in which it was thought to be a virtue to keep one's wife um, her behavior, anyway, under control, and Robert didn't. You know, perhaps he'd been too free with his encouragement before. And I don't know why I wrote this on my phone. I was thinking about this part of her story, and I wrote, and I'll just, like, read it off my phone. A failure to be submissive can sometimes be regarded as aggressiveness. No matter if you're a woman trying to be heard in a male-dominated workplace or a person of color trying to explain to a white audience how you feel about something. And here is Mary Terrell trying to fight both of these battles at once in an era in which some things were just not talked about in society.
2: Oh, that was a moment of brilliance that you put that on your phone. That's really good. <laughs> I think I was at a stoplight. Oh,
1: <laughs> Wow. I know. Thank, wow. uh, thank goodness yeah. it was a long stoplight. Nailed so, it. Let's yeah. just close our books. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm sorry to say this is where Robert Terrell, a former supporter of her fine mind, and Mary seem to have separated. I don't think they ever lived together again. As far as I can tell, he never lived in the same house with Mary and the children again. Though it was common enough knowledge around their peer group, it was not, you know, acknowledged Not even in her autobiography, although you can kind of read between the lines. The girls and I planned a house. She agreed that she should take them to Oberlin where Mm -hmm. she stayed, kind of um, that kind of thing. They are polar opposites within the civil rights movement. Robert basically owed his job to the influence of Booker T. Washington or thought he did. And Mary was increasingly impatient. And I can't remember what she called them, but it was something like the Get Along Gang. You know, really dismissive yeah. and kind of yeah. insulting. And and she wanted more direct confrontation, I think. Maybe this was a precursor to the strained, mixed marriages of today, you know, politically. Mm. Well, I will say, though, later, despite their separation, she actually... Marshaled senators to his defense when he was facing his last term, faced a very tough confirmation hearing in the Senate. Um, It was not going to go his way under President Wilson. And she kind of roped in. She knew some guys. She knew some fair minded people who had been to Oberlin and pulled in the Old Friends Network, the alumni organization, to his cause. And what's right is right, as far as she's concerned. He was a very, very good judge. People often waited until he was available lawyers to have their cases tried by him because he was considered to be such a fair justice. And so the fact that he was doing a good job should not have been tainted by the racism of the administration. And she wanted to make sure that he did not get hit with that stick. So there is that, even though they'd been separated for a while at that point. So we talked about Booker T. Washington going one way
2: and Mr. Terrell,
1: and then W.E.B. Du Bois and Mary kind of heading
2: down another path. W.E.B. Du Bois had formed an organization called the Niagara Movement. He was the only black man in the original leadership of this team, but they demanded equal opportunities for education, economic advances. They wanted everything to be not separate, but equal, but equal, period. And they worked very aggressively through legal manner to get these things happening, rocking boats all over the place. A few years after the Niagara movement had formed, they came together with some other leaders, not just white men, but women, white women, black women, activists, and they formed an organization called the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Their motto
1: to ensure the political, educational, social and economic equality of rights of all persons, and to eliminate racial hatred and racial discrimination. Mary was invited to become one of the approximately 60 charter members of this new
2: organization. Along with our friend Ida B. Wells Barnett and our other friend Jane Adams. Jane Adams and Mary actually met. They became like lunch buddies. Can you imagine sitting at the table next to them? That is some progressive small talk at that lunch table. I would just keep ordering things so I could sit there and listen to them, I think. Also, Florence Kelly, we talked about her during the Jane Addams episodes. She was (laughs) part of that first um, meeting that convened to form this organization. Now, we think now of the NAACP as being this pillar of legal strength, but then it was really considered a radical organization. Mary was criticized by African-Americans who were afraid to join. You know, what if their neighbors found out? What if their bosses found out? They could be fired. Their livelihood could be ended just for joining these people.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and it was an honor to be included, of course, in the initial invitation. But Mary found that the NAACP wasn't necessarily that good at balancing the advancement of colored people with the advancement of women people. And she found herself relegated to support roles only. Women could raise money. They could be in auxiliary services behind the scenes, rallying and and doing some work, sure. But credit and a voice were not so forthcoming. And was it all the drama from those articles? I just don't know. seems like they would really like it. Well, one thing I can say, and, and Mary would say it herself, is that they did not see fit to deploy an experienced, connected, intelligent woman to help their cause, In the way that they might have. They have fixed it now. There are women in prominent positions of power all over the NAACP. So, at some point between her time and now, they have definitely evolved. So, kudos to them. But she decided she had to continue to operate outside of the scope of the national organization if she was going to make any progress. There was an organization that admired her and wanted to use her work as inspiration. In 1913, 22 college women at Howard University founded the African-American sorority Delta Sigma Theta to promote academic excellence and provide assistance to those in need. And Mary's leadership in the National Association of Colored Women, from the Wayback Machine at this point, and her theme for that organization lifting as we climb, really spoke to them. It was very inspirational. And Mary gave them advice and encouragement and connections. She actually wrote the Delta Oath, though, since it's secret, I can't tell you what it is. (laughs) At least a few of you know it. I know. At least a few of you know it, but you're not supposed to tell if we're not Mm -hmm. members. So keep it to yourself. I'm sure it's very inspirational. Uh, She was made an honorary Soror sister the unofficial official 23rd member. And she's 51 at this point, not exactly
2: co-ed age.
1: (laughs) And this organization's first official club outing was a doozy. The Women's Suffrage Parade was created, and I quote, to march in a spirit of protest against the present political organization of society for which women are excluded. It was to be held the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration on purpose because they felt that he was kind of meh on the whole thing. They needed to light a fire under him, and this parade would show him how important women's suffrage was to his career, (laughs) frankly,
2: ideally. We've all seen the pictures of this particular parade. There was a very large parade in Washington, D.C. Groups from around the country came. It was all organized by Alice Paul and the National American Women's Suffrage Association especially this year. There's images of it everywhere. You know, 8,000 marchers, nine bands, 20 floats. Thousands of spectators were packed along the parade route to watch these groups of women in their long white dresses on their fancy hats and their sashes with purple, which stood for loyalty, white, which stood for purity, and gold, which stood for light and life. Marching, Inez Amal Holland on her big white horse is leading the parade and all these groups are marching with their banners. When you see these pictures, look for the Black women because they're very hard to find. There was consternation in the
1: land. The organizer Alice Paul was dismayed that colored women wanted to participate. If they marched, the Southern delegations wouldn't march, to which I say, let them via con Dios then. Again, you're focusing on the wrong people. She
2: even went so far as to say, quote, we must have a white procession or a Negro procession or no procession at all. After some ringing of hands, Alice Paul
1: had an idea. OK, OK, so first the white suffragists by state or country, and then we'll have this buffer layer of men and then the colored women can bring up the rear. Surely no one could object to that. Now, if we have learned nothing about Mary Tarrell, <laughs> we know she was not about to meekly proceed to the rear of anything. And she she once slapped a white man in a streetcar for not scooting out of the two seats he was taking up, as many, many commuters on metro trains would like to do. No, ma'am. Mary went straight to the head office of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, kind of the blanket organization over this whole parade, and they told Alice Paul to let Mary March wherever she had a mind to, which, as it turned out, was right beside her twenty-two Delta sisters in the middle of the New York delegation. Thank you very much. Was it New York delegation? Yes, because and I'm How- not sure why. <laughs> oh, because <laughs> Howard, Howard is in Washington D.C., but okay. that's where they marched is with the New York delegation.
2: When we had talked about Ida B. Wells, this is the same parade where she's—you know—she was told to march in the back of the parade with all the other Black women, and she's like. Nah, I'm good. And at the very last minute, she jumped into the parade to march with her white friends, all representing the state of Illinois. If you're looking at these photos and you see a Black woman, the chances are good that it would be Ida B. Wells before the Black contingents started passing through.
1: And during our Nellie Bly episode, we talked about how this parade descended into violence and disarray due to sexism from the onlookers. There were some African-American women at the back of the parade, but honestly, by the time they reached the main body of the audience, the structure of the whole thing had fallen apart.
2: There was a hundred women that ended up hospitalized because of the crush of spectators who were not even being held back at all. I don't even think the police were even trying They were spit on and pushed and injured in this thing. Every single marcher in that parade was very brave. Helen Keller had a nervous breakdown. Helen Keller was there. This is a big deal.
1: Well, so it descended into chaos. However, it's pretty famous. And I think we've made our point that equality is necessary. Now, when war broke out, Mary, along with many other women, volunteered to take a government clerk position. And they were very... Eager to interview her because she was fluent in German and French. And so she got several interviews where people would pull out her paper and then they'd look up and their faces would fall and she got rejected because of her race.
2: She was able to get a position at the War Risk Insurance Bureau. She was assigned a desk in the room for white clerks because apparently the person that interviewed her didn't look up, I guess, as they had before. But when it was discovered that she wasn't really white, All of a sudden, they made up some reasons that she needed to be fired. And then when that
1: didn't work because she's smarter than them, uh, they transferred her to the colored section of another unit that happened to many workers in this segregated city. And here's something else. New rule. You colored women can't use this restroom over here anymore. There's one at the other end of the building you can use. Nope. Nope. not uh Not for one minute, said Mary, who drafted her letter of resignation and turned it into her boss. And he called her in. You're resigning over a bathroom? No. I'm resigning over my self-respect, you chump. <laughs> and I assure you, I have the journalistic skills to whip this up into a really embarrassing situation for you. And... Finally, they came to a compromise. Mary agreed to change the reason she was leaving, officially, if he would cancel the bathroom nonsense for everyone else she was leaving behind her. And he agreed. Obviously not fixing the fundamental issue. We've all seen hidden figures. We've all read the help. There's a weird bathroom in my cellar. You know, obviously that issue went on for decades to come. But let it be known, world, that the nonsense in Mary's immediate orbit was to stop. She was 51. And I think that's when the shell cracks in all of us. All the lady persons of my acquaintance are like, that's when I do not care. I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and it will just happen, whatever's going to happen.
2: When I turned 40, if you're listening to older episodes, I ranted on about how awesome turning 40 was. I have since turned 50. And I can tell you that turning 50 is also awesome. And it surprised me in ways that I'm not going to carry on about right now. But what you just said really kind of nails it. Like, okay. And even if you think, I always thought that I just, I said, you know, WTF all the time. But no, I didn't. I didn't know that until after I turned 50. And then I was like, oh, this is what that really means. Oh.
1: I think on some level I've been like that since I was approximately 11.
2: <laughs> so I'm very curious to see what happens to you when you cross the 50 threshold.
1: Oh, dear. All right. Well, stay tuned and buckle in. <laughs> Well, Mary herself, now that she was free of the restroom conspiracy, turned her considerable efforts toward work with the War Camp Community Service. So what that is, they provide libraries, gyms, community dinners, dances, sports leagues, swimming pools to promote unity and harmony between soldiers and the community. And then she expanded it to benefit women of color in the cities in which they started those facilities. and. In our town here in Kansas City, there is the, as far as I know, the official World War One Museum. And they have a lot of artifacts about this um, War Camp Community Service Department. A lot of them say things like, keep them smiling. Morale is winning the war. And it has all these people with thumbs ups, you know. So that is actually a better use of her time and talent than sitting in a room typing.
2: Oh, yeah. Definitely. They were extraordinarily fortunate to get her. And I just want to add, if you ever find yourself in Kansas City, if you could only do one thing, I would suggest going to that museum. It's wonderful.
1: It's so uncommon, too. That's a war that people just don't know that much about. I mean, mm-hmm. World War II, how many movies are there? But then, um, you know, and maybe that new movie, 1917, obviously is talking about World War One. So maybe we're starting to turn our attention a little further back. But anyway, yes, highly recommend. Second... Uh, one might be the Steamboat Arabia Museum. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, so while the war was still going on, and Mary certainly had other responsibilities, Mary Terrell and her daughter Phyllis joined Alice Paul's group of protesters that stood outside the White House. Quietly, with those big, big signs, said things like, Mr. Wilson, how much longer must we wait for victory? They were called silent sentinels, these ladies, although sometimes they were not that silent. Alice Paul had gotten disgusted with the old group that had ruined up her parade and had started her own more militant organization within the women's suffrage organization, based more on the kind of more violent activism of the British suffragettes. So she had brought that back to America, the the people who had kind of lost their patience and were not going to wait for states to creep in anymore and wanted a national amendment. This group was the one that was famously and so ruthlessly gathered up and punished during that movie Iron Jawed Angels, if you remember that, force-feeding, ill-treatment, All of that got out and finally made President Wilson begin to more publicly support the issue of women's suffrage. He said, we have made partners of women in this war. Shall we admit them only to a partnership of suffering and sacrifice and not
2: to privilege and rights? You're like a long time coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And look what it required to happen. He had to. I mean, I guess you have to do what Booker T. Washington said and don't rock the boat and try to work within the system. But then you got to rock the boat. And that's what they're doing. And you know what I think is really cool about this is just a few minutes ago, we were talking about Alice Paul, and she was kind of like the bad guy because she wanted the support of the Southern women. So she was ready to exclude Black women from that parade. And now she's the hero. I just love that everybody's story is so complicated. You know, they're neither good nor bad. And that's right there, just like in 10 minutes or whatever it's been. That's humanity. I mean, Mm -hmm. you'll hardly ever find somebody that's a
1: truly bad guy and you'll probably rarely find anyone that's truly, honestly, 100% good either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's good. That's a good example. That's a good lesson to take from pretty much all of our shows, (laughs) (laughs) I think. We even got mad at Florence Nightingale, so. That's right. After the war was over, Mary was tapped to go speak at the Zurich Peace Conference. And again, she didn't pull any punches in front of a global audience. And I quote, she said, You may talk about permanent peace until doomsday, but the world will never have it until the dark races of the world are given a square deal. Nice. She met dignitaries. She met H.G. Wells, (laughs) famous science fiction author that I really love. As did Nellie Bly. Oh, that's right. He was something else, wasn't he? He liked I to know. meet some people. She also met someone that I someday will love to cover, Daisy, Countess of Warwick. People called her the Red Countess. So a uh, noble woman of England who was very into social reform, rare enough in her social class. So uh, she and Mary got along like a house on fire and it was a really good partnership. So I would like to explore the Countess of Warwick.
2: It's so easy for us to get stuck in this era, isn't it? (laughs) I know. She also joined the organization that had previously been the War Camp Community Service. They morphed into an after-war organization. She accepted a full-time position for $2,000 a year plus travel, which is about $35,000 now. But she was able to move to New York City. She worked on the 39th floor of a skyscraper. She had people that worked for her. She hired people and she fired people she had no other responsibilities at home. Her daughters were grown. She wasn't taking care of Robert at this point. So she's got this very, for her, blissful situation. All she can do is focus on her work, which is what she really wanted to do anyway.
1: In August of 1920, after decades of hard work and sacrifice, the 19th Amendment was ratified into law. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Do you have a to-do list that never seems to end? Cross one thing off your list with Beta Brands Dress Pant Yoga Pants. They're perfect for busy women who want to look great and don't have time to be distracted by uncomfortable clothing. Stylish, comfortable, professional attire, you shouldn't have to pick one. With Beta Brands, you never have to sacrifice comfort or function for style. Beta Brand's Dress Pant Yoga Pants are super comfy, perfectly stretchy, and stay wrinkle-free. They have all the style of dress pants with the stretch, fit, and feel of yoga pants. Whatever your style, Beta Brand has the pants to match. Choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles like boot cut, straight leg, skinny, cropped, and more. They even have a pair with eight, yes, eight, pockets. And now they also offer premium denim with the same flexibility and comfort as yoga pants. Right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash chicks. That's 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash chicks. Millions of women agree these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Go to betabrand.com slash chicks for 20% off. So hooray, hooray, the 19th Amendment is passed at last. There was champagne, celebration throughout the land. This is the 100th anniversary here in 2020 of that Frabjist Day. Halloo However, dot, dot, dot. Many states were all about those loopholes, literacy tests, poll taxes, violence, anything to suppress the African-American vote. Voting rights, real ones, did not actually come to the women of the African-American movement until as late as 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. And I doubt I'll be around for the 100th anniversary of that one.
2: Mm -mm. No, and Asian and Native American women, it, it took them just as long, which blows my mind. Even now, though,
1: even now, at least as far as the elections of 2018, We're concerned they're actively being suppressed again because some states are suddenly requiring that you vote with numbered street address,
2: Mm -hmm. which excludes voters who live on reservations. But back in Mary's time, those states had had 50 years to develop all those voter suppression techniques, and they just began to implement them on the women right out of the gate. There was no election that the women could slide through. Southern black women were just not allowed to vote, just like southern black men were. not There's a lot more going on here than, hey, presto, we got
1: it done. Cartoon wiping of hands together to dust them off and do a shot of the finest gin in the land, which <laughs> a lot of these ladies moved on to temperance. That's a whole other podcast. I know that's <laughs> Mary was a teetotaler herself, but... um. Yeah. She had to keep up the original good fight. You know, I don't think she got involved in temperance, but um, they better hurry because prohibition is coming. So do the shots of gin now. <laughs> um, that was hilarious that I'm just like, whoops. Yeah. Well... Mary began to campaign and solicit votes for the Warren Harding campaign, which promised to work on eliminating Jim Crow laws. But he let her down after he was elected. He didn't even give her a role in his administration. And he expanded Jim Crow in Washington, D.C. Now, you
2: would think at this particular point, all those women that had been fighting for the right for women to vote would have all this time on their hands, right? All those people that wanted women's suffrage to happen could help this cause, right? Wasn't that the plan? No. They said that, no, my dear, it's a race issue for us to help you, not a gender one. It's not in our wheelhouse. I mean, that's obviously not a direct quote, but they wouldn't help her.
1: The black women were pretty much on their own. Well, like I said, in section one, Mary and her sisters had to work alongside and contend with two separate groups of people who weren't necessarily that interested in including them the menfolk, and I wave my hand to include many menfolk, not all, and also the white suffragists who weren't that interested in including black women. So they had to fight on the race and the
2: sexism. So it was stressful. And she's not even getting any support by her government. Like you just said, Harding was elected and he didn't want to advance the rights of any Black people, although he ran saying he wanted to join the League of Nations. He wanted racial unity. In reality, he didn't integrate federal offices. He didn't join the League of Nations. He was a very pro-business president and actually created tougher immigration policies. So he didn't represent anything that he had run on or anything that that Republican Party stood for at the time. And he also died two years into his term and his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, took over.
1: Well, the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial in 1922 had colored only seating, which is an irony, I guess, unless you know a little more about Mr. Lincoln. And I am not going down that rabbit hole here. I'll tell you that right now. Just that he was not necessarily on board with total equality any more than Mr. Harding was. And no lie, there was to be a statue approved by Congress in Washington, (laughs) D.C., to honor Black mammies, a giant slave woman holding a white baby with two African-American children holding onto her dress, trying to get her attention, but no, I am holding this white baby. And I do not lie here, quoting a Southern congressman, if you have a seatbelt, make sure it's fastened. (laughs) No class of any race of people held in bondage could be found anywhere who lived more free from care or distress than the Southern black mammy. I'm sorry, what? No, And this is within living memory of the mothers and grandmothers, at least, of the African-American population of the United States. Mary came out swinging in the black press. You need to start viewing enslaved black women as three-dimensional human beings who were physically and psychologically tormented. Don't hang your blissful memories of a time gone by on people who you have been torturing. She was not having it. Monuments like this one are attempting to rewrite the sordid truths of slavery. She's so ahead of her time. That statue was never actually built, but there are others. There is, for example, a monument that features a mammy in Arlington National Cemetery called the Confederate monument where a mammy is crying as her owner is leaving for war. It's an extremely sanitized depiction of slavery. Let's just leave it at that.
2: Mm-hmm. In addition to fighting that particular issue, Robert's health was beginning to deteriorate. He had high blood pressure and he had a stroke which required him to step back from his own work. You know, Mary was still working. She didn't slow down. But Robert had a second stroke a couple years later and he died in 1925 at the age of 68.
1: Mary continued all her branches of work throughout the 1930s, civil rights, local and national speeches, political work, boycotts and articles. And then she began to work on her autobiography, which is entitled A Colored Woman in a White World, which was rejected by publisher after publisher. You're not telling the story the way readers want to hear it,
2: they said. Yes, I know, said Mary. That's the whole point including the first publisher that came to her and asked her if she had an autobiography in her. And it took her nine years, but they ultimately passed on it. So she ended up having to self-publish it through a smaller house.
1: She did get her friend H.G. Wells to write a preface for her, and it includes these words in the introduction. Some of my white friends tell me that colored people must work out their own salvation. I think that's a little dig at the suffragists who wash their hands. Mm. of the whole thing. I hope the efforts which I have made will convince them that I have tried not only to work out my own salvation, but to help others in my group to work out their own. It didn't sell all that well. I hope she would be very gratified to know how highly regarded it is today. The book I have, which is actually from 2005, is in its ninth printing. So, and I'm sure it has been reissued more times since. And good luck finding it. (laughs)
2: Even on Amazon, it was like $40 to buy a used copy. Well, that's how highly regarded it is. I guess. It was also, what, 480 pages or something? It was like not a little autobiography. It was pretty heavy.
1: Let me see how many pages it is. Well, don't count the index. It is 472 pages. There you go. (laughs) Oh, my. She's lived a long time. She's got a lot to say. And I just discovered... In the Hmm. index of that autobiography, the Delta Oath is there. I won't tell. Let's just let it be. Okay. (laughs) In order to receive that spoiler alert, you have to look in the index of her autobiography. Only the worthy (laughs) shall meet this quest. Uh, Yeah, I just noticed it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, anyway, speaking of college women, (laughs) now that we're on that subject, Mary had another sort of run in with the establishment culture
2: in America. At this point, she's in her 70s. You know, you think maybe it's time for her to retire. Phyllis had recently been divorced and she was living with Mary. But Mary wanted to join the American Association of University Women. This was a group whose criteria was two points. Be a woman, okay, and hold a degree from an accredited school. Well, she had a degree from Oberlin and she had two honorary degrees from Oberlin and Howard University. So let's check that one off the list apparently written in invisible ink, was you needed to be white. (laughs) Yeah. Mary had approached this organization along with another friend of hers from Oberlin who was white and was easily accepted, where Mary's application was denied. So she sued the organization. Eventually, the national governing body voted to allow any woman who fit those two criteria accepted nationally. But the local organization in Washington was so upset about the whole thing that they split from the national organization. It's like, oh, you're going to take her? Then we aren't part of your group. So crazy. I think anyone would be so proud to have her.
1: I would think so, too. Even I mean, at this point, everybody knew who she was. She might
2: have wanted to wait
1: another decade or so to have written her autobiography.
2: In the next 10 years, Mary was part of some very high profile cases. She was part of an organization called Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which wanted to free a Black woman who was wrongly accused of murder. Her and her two sons had fought off a man who was assaulting the woman and he had died. They were brought on trial for one day and found guilty and sentenced to death. So Mary was part of an organization that helped free this woman. She was also part of a group that fought a proposed bill called the Defense of Marriage Act, not the one from 1996. This is another one from 1947, and it was trying to establish uniform marriage and divorce laws. But buried way deep in it was legislation that would make it illegal for black and whites to marry nationally. Mary and some friends got a meeting with the senator who had written the bill. And he actually sounds, I think he was really surprised to find out that someone had snuck it in and he dropped the whole thing. And now we move
1: into yet another phase of Mary Terrell's activism called Supreme Court test case, case, case (laughs) in February of 1950. 86-year-old Mary, two friends of color, and a white man met up for lunch outside of a popular restaurant on 14th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. Thompson's Restaurant was part of a famous chain of cafeteria-style restaurants. Does anyone remember Furs Cafeteria or Wyatt's Cafeteria? You get a tray and you move along the rails and tell the worker behind each station what you want. There was one in Towney Small in Wichita. I'm trying to
2: think of one I've been to one Maybe G Fox had one in Hartford
1: That's the only place I could think of that would have it Oh, I used to love it My mother would take me when we were shopping And I would get mashed potatoes and mac and cheese And a piece of lemon meringue pie 12-year-old me was a carb queen (laughs) But we, okay, in my defense We had to dissect a cow heart in fifth grade And I swear to you, after that day I don't think I ate meat till I got to college It was like a definitive moment in my life. So what was there left to eat but cheese and starch (laughs) and sugar? Well, at Thompson's, you could get a quality meal at a good price. Sandwiches piled high, a quarter of a pie, and the freshest coffee in town for 45 cents. Unless, of course, you were African American. Like many restaurants in America, Thompsons excluded people of color. Most of its branches were in Chicago or New York, and all through the 1930s, the chain had been hit with lawsuit after lawsuit about that, and none had been successful in integrating the restaurant. But Washington, D.C. had a Thompsons and a legal loophole dating back to the more egalitarian decade right after the Civil War. We are going in the time machine. Way back during the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, there were two laws passed that prohibited restaurants, hotels, barbershops, soda fountains, and bathing houses in Washington, D.C. from refusing to serve any, and I quote, well-behaved customer, regardless of race or color. Discrimination had clamped down a few years after this, of course, and people routinely disregarded those laws anyway until they were completely forgotten, and banned whoever they wanted on the basis of color, so there. Mary Terrell herself had given a speech about this very thing as far back as 1906 called What It Means to be Colored in the Capital of the United States, in which she had said, As a colored woman, I may walk from the Capitol to the White House ravenously hungry and abundantly supplied with money with which to purchase a meal without finding a single restaurant in which I would be permitted to take a morsel of food if it was patronized by white people unless I were willing to sit behind a screen. But unbeknownst to Mary, and indeed, sort of buried by time, those two lost anti-discrimination laws were still taken away, never repealed, still in force, though never enforced. Fast forward to the year 1948, where a committee of 90 prominent Americans, including Eleanor Roosevelt, published their report on racial injustice in the nation's capital and its impact on the black community. Page after page of shameful goings-on, and in conclusion, this paragraph. All of this, despite there being anti-discrimination laws in the books here since 1872, which have been conveniently buried and, for all we know, are still in force. Oh, oh. But this casual mention made activists raise their heads. Huh? (laughs) What's still in force? A labor union and consumer protection advocate named Annie Stein saw the possibilities And she set up a legal team and gathered together over 60 civil rights, labor unions, social clubs, and religious organizations into this umbrella organization to take on discrimination in the nation's capital, based on that casual paragraph from the report. The new organization had a bad name. (laughs) It's the Coordinating Committee. What wah, wah. (laughs) Not very exciting. No. The branding was not there. But what was exciting was the person that Ms. Stein persuaded to serve as president of the whole operation. We need a name, Ms. Terrell, unafraid to act in the face of society's disapproval for the greater good. Well, (laughs) that is certainly me. (laughs) The corporation's legal team... Recommended that a specific test case should start making its way through the court system. And so it was that President Mary Terrell, her friend Reverend Jernigan, a woman named Geneva Brown, who was secretary of the Cafeteria Workers Union, and a Quaker civil rights activist stopped in for a bite to eat. They got their trays, they put their silverware in and their napkins, and they started to shove. Their trays down the glass fronted cabinets and telling the workers what they wanted. And about halfway down, along comes the manager to kick the party out. We don't serve colored people here. You're refusing to serve me, said Reverend Jernigan, because my face is black. It's not me, said the manager. I don't have anything against colored people. It's company policy. Just to clarify, here in this restaurant in Washington, D.C., you will not allow me to eat here because of my race. That is correct, said the manager. And then they left and went next door and filed a case. So their case... Mary Terrell's first adventure into Thompson's restaurant got thrown out on a technicality. And so the organization sent back two more parties and eventually one case stuck and started moving through the court system, just like they wanted it to. The Washington Restaurant Association mobilized to fight for Thompson's right to discriminate. They raised tens of thousands of dollars to fight this radical element in the black community. The white press was less than kind. Very sorry to say about that. And Mary and the committee were not going to wait around for the courts. They sent test parties to restaurants and teams of negotiators to the offices of said restaurants and were pleasantly surprised to be able to gather a list of restaurants that would be happy to serve any customer regardless of race. So they began to compile and update a list. The State Department of the United States of America and foreign embassies all over Washington, D.C. asked for copies of this list. They dealt with international affairs often, and the fact that some of their visitors from other countries were turned away was very embarrassing, to say the least. And could often lead to diplomatic problemos, you know, it was not good. (laughs) And so they subscribed to updates and sometimes would send messengers for the latest list of restaurants where they could calmly take their international visitors. That's pretty cool, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not cool that it had to happen, but it's cool that Mary was kind of subverting the system and the government actually had to come to her for details.
2: (laughs) But on the other side, the restaurants that weren't allowing black people to come and eat at them, this organization began to picket. But it was considered to be vulgar
1: at first. That's... um, Do we want... Are we going to go there? It's kind of... um. And so Mary showed up at the picket line in her fur coat and her walking stick in a snowstorm. (laughs) Like You know what? Who cares? (laughs) Let's make our point. Now, everyone was told to dress very nicely because what you want is, since the law is respectable people have to be allowed to eat, we all have to look super respectable. right? And then who can say anything because we're following the law. And so... I love that picture of her
2: in her fur coat walking around. uh, (laughs) Sometimes she even brought her grandson with her, Mm -hmm. made sure that he was dressed nicely, and he picketed along with the rest of the group. It wasn't anything violent. It was just this calm boycott of a restaurant for not serving them.
1: So the first challenge was Krasge's. took them a while, but they finally cracked it. And then Josephine Baker, episode 34 and 35 of the History Chicks podcast, was visiting from her adopted country of France and was refused service at Hex soda counter. And soon there were pickets at Hex 2, starring Josephine Baker and her friend Mary Terrell and, mm-hmm. <laughs> during certain months, Santa Claus himself. <laughs> I have visited the capitals of many countries, said Mary Terrell, but only in the capital of my own country have I ever been subjected to this sort of indignity. Well, victory and victory. Hex cracked. And you know who else cracked? Oh, I will tell you Hex took out all of its soda counter stools. (laughs) They said, well, people will get grumpy about sitting next to color people, but maybe if no one can sit down and everyone's standing at the counter, it'll be better. I don't get it. Fine
2: compromise.
1: (laughs) Whatever, dude. Whatever. We won.
2: And you know what other thing? Victory. It took three years for District of Columbia versus John R. Thompson Company Incorporated to wind its way through the court system until they were seen at the Supreme Court. And the verdict was actually unanimous. Legal segregation in restaurants became illegal in Washington, D.C.
1: Hooray! And a few days after the glorious verdict, Mary Terrell went back to Thompson's with another group, including many of the decoy protesters that went in to get served and got denied. And the manager met her in the line. (laughs) He carried her tray to a table and pulled out her
0: chair. I love that.
1: Mrs. Terrell, is there anything else I can do for you? Uh she ate her victory dinner surrounded by photographers and
2: reporters. <laughs> I totally love that. And it sounds like he was nice. About, I mean, he was really nice. You know, like mm, some people could be bitter. It didn't sound as though he was. He was like, yes, OK. Well, and
1: he could very well have been telling the truth. I know it's a cliche. Like, I don't personally have a problem with it, but it's company policy. Right. You know, maybe he would lose his job hmm. Right. And, oh, and, yeah. You know, he was the breadwinner and he had 14 kids at home. We don't know his situation. But when the law came down that he could no longer discriminate, he did not even hesitate. So there you go. Mm-hmm. For her 90th birthday, Mary decided to celebrate by testing the segregationist waters of Washington, D.C.'s theaters. But they're no fools. <laughs> theaters saw what just happened in the restaurant industry and they saw the way the wind was blowing in the country. And Mary and her party had no trouble getting in to see a movie called The Actress, starring Spencer Tracy. It's not a great movie, I'll tell you. (laughs) But what is great is that within a month or two, theaters all over Washington, D.C. were now integrated. They did not want the power of Mary Terrell and the committee turned in their direction. If I live to see integration in the schools here, said Mary Terrell, I can die in peace.
2: So... In 1951, Oliver Brown wanted to send his daughter, Linda, to school in Topeka, Kansas. But Mr. Brown felt that segregated schools were not equal, that the ones that his daughter could go to, the black schools, were not as good as the white school that he wanted to enroll her in. So he began legal proceedings that kind of worked their way up through the legal system, gathering into them four other similar cases that were happening around the country And eventually, Brown versus the Board of Education was at the Supreme Court. It was argued by Black lawyer Thurgood Marshall, who would later sit on that same Supreme Court. In May of 1954, the Supreme Court unanimously voted in favor of Brown, and racial segregation in schools became illegal across the land.
1: At last, 90 years after the end of the Civil War. And I am so glad that Mary Terrell got to witness that. Mary died two months afterwards of complications of unspecified cancer in Highland Beach, Maryland. She was just shy of her 91st birthday. She lay in state at the offices of the National Association of Colored Women. And during her funeral, the mourners were so numerous that they spread out onto the street and speakers had to be set up to broadcast the service dignitaries from all aspects of her life came to pay their respects the entire service was very short and very simple and her daughter phyllis said mother has already been eulogized so much that surely there's nothing left to say and mother would have wanted it this way
2: mary terrell is buried next to her husband at the lincoln memorial cemetery near her home in maryland
1: That brings us to the end of the life of Mary Church Terrell, whose motto during her life was keep on going, keep on insisting, keep on fighting injustice.
2: The things that she was working for, however, didn't die with her. Eleven years later, the Civil Rights Act of 1965 was signed and all the voter suppression laws were repealed, allowing Black women to finally vote. 21 years after her death, in 1975, all women, Native American, Asian, and Latina, were also allowed to vote. That's a long—21 years after she died, before Native American women could vote. So during this 100th anniversary
1: of the 19th Amendment, yes, we should celebrate it. It's a momentous occasion— I just don't want you to forget that there are many more anniversaries to come. If we're looking at including all people in the suffrage movement and in modern society, I think we should recognize that other people are still waiting for their anniversaries. Hey, let's talk about some books. All right. So obviously, we have been talking about this book on and off for two full episodes, A Colored Woman in a White World by Mary Church Terrell. Despite its length, I think it reads very nicely. It is not in any way birth to death. It does not go in order at all. It jumps around by subject. So... (laughs) if you're hoping to find uh, the life story, A to B, this is not going to be the one that gets you there. But it's good to to hear about her internal monologue about
2: some things. Mm. If you can find it again. I'm I'm just a little bitter about that. I even had a librarian friend of mine try to find me a copy because I needed it fairly quickly. And she could only find one at the UMKC library where I don't have, um, I can't take books out of. So. It helped me not at all. I do know that you can read the original manuscript; has been digitized. Yay. Although the book, yeah, the book has not. Um, if you want to read your handwriting, it's kind of hard. I only lasted a few pages, but there are uh, Mary Church Terrell papers at the Library of Congress, and we'll link you up to that.
1: Also, just another Southern town: Mary Church Terrell and the struggle for racial justice in the nation's capital by Joan Quigley.
2: This is like it. This is like the only biography. I could really, you know, like an adult biography. And even like her autobiography, it wasn't linear. You know, it wasn't birth to death like we do. It was organized by subject, I guess.
1: Right. So another thing you have then is um, compilations that you kind of have to rely on. One that I use is called Black Foremothers, Three Lives by Dorothy Sterling.
2: That one I could get my hands on.
1: And then um, I got some details about the court case from a book called Farther Along, a civil rights memoir by Marvin Harold Kaplan. And we can give you
2: a link to that. There was a middle grade book in the African-American biography series. It's called Mary Church Terrell, Speaking Out for Civil Rights by Cookie Lumel. We've recommended this series before for other people. It's a middle grade book, so there's not a whole lot of detail. But it was actually the only one that went birth to death, which I was really happy about. There was a kids book that I just love. It's called Bold and Brave, Ten Heroes Who Won Women the Right to Vote by Kristen Gillibrand, who was a senator from New York, former candidate for president. And illustrated by Mara Kalman, I just found this book so charming. It had colorful illustrations and short bios of women. You know, we keep saying this over and over again. It's not just white women that were working for this. There was women of color working for the 19th Amendment as well. There's just as many women of color in this book as there are white women, which I thought was wonderful.
1: I am looking right now in the lounge. I thought somebody just posted a book. Shoot. I was so excited to just mention it. Dang it. Well, it's in the lounge. <laughs> Somebody posted it. That's really sad that I wanted to call you out and make you all excited. Now I can't <laughs> <fucking> find it. <laughs> Maybe I'll just post through the lounge without trying to look for a book. Hold on just a sec. We're not in any big rush. It doesn't matter if we... God, people are posting so often, which is good, that I'm like... Gah. I know. And I kept
2: trying to take out like people who post toots after Tuesday. Yep. I started taking some out and I just send nice like the note. You can send them what rule they broke. Yeah. But I know I did. I didn't catch them all because a couple of days later I found some that I missed. And I was like, dang, I hope those people that I took their post down didn't see these ago. How come her and she could stay and not me? But I just missed them. There's a lot going on in there.
1: There is because I'm oh, here we go. Here we go. Yay. Okay. Yay. Okay. 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 It's not a book. It's flashcards, but that's okay. And a listener named Sarah Tompkinson posted some flashcards in the lounge called Votes for Women, Leaders of the Suffrage Movement. They're flashcards and they include Mary Church Terrell. So I think that is quite amazing. Um, It's for 10 and above, looks like. And they sell them in those kind of stores like here in Kansas City, we have Brookside Toy and Science, kind of your specialty toy stores, probably where you find it. You can get a hold of almost every one of her speeches in compilations. They are often bound together by subject, but those you can find also online if that's easier. I um, have in my list of links links to the Progress of Colored Women speech that she gave in front of Susan B. Anthony and Company, also, the Negro's view on lynching that she published as a rebuttal to Mr. Page's horrible acceptance of the practice of lynching. And other speeches, um, plea for the white South by a colored woman. I, I was really touched by quite a lot of them. So we'll just send you links to a site where you can page through and fall down your own personal rabbit hole.
2: In 2018, the main library of her beloved Oberlin College changed its name to the Mary Church Terrell Library. Her papers are held there. They are currently being digitized. I think they might already be done. But her papers are being digitized by the Library of Congress. But at the Oberlin College library.org they have this beautiful multi-page journey through Mary's life, again, separated by topic rather than linear. There's just basic information, all organized by subject. It's just a nice resource to kind of flip through really quickly with lots of pictures, which I love. So it was nice that they went to put that together on their site.
1: Also, some rabbit holes. Governor Andrew Johnson, uh, this is from part one. So if you haven't heard part one yet, you'll be like, I don't know what this is about. When Governor Andrew Johnson freed the Tennessee slaves after the Emancipation Proclamation, I have marked an article about the Brownsville incident in which Mary Church Terrell stepped onto a world stage to persuade a president, however unsuccessfully, to become a rational and lenient human being. um also you know i don't know how much anybody wants to mess with this but about since mary terrell was into the republican party it's um the republican party's evolution in a series of maps from abraham lincoln's day to today i thought it was very um easy to understand and graphic so there's that and also the delta sigma theta website
2: there was also a oh i don't have this written down It was an interactive video that showed the progress of the Union and Confederates armies, like with just a map of the United States. I'll find it and link you up to it. I want to say it was a Smithsonian project, but it was really interesting to see how, because we had talked at the very first episode about how Western Tennessee was taken over by the Union first and Eastern Tennessee wasn't, even though they had tried to become a separate state. So it's just really interesting to see how the Union armies progressed. Also Blackpast.org is a vast site of content. It's all created by volunteer historians to document the African American history. And it's got a lot, I mean, not just Mary, but a lot of other information about other people, which is really cool. There is
1: an art, I see, I fall down so many rabbit holes. And I don't <laughs> know if anybody is this interested, but I read through this whole thing with great interest. There is a digitized version of a, hmm, I want to say 1919 book called The American Negro in the First World War that talks about expectations, the role of women, the reaction to soldiers when they came back. It is like very, very thorough, all digitized and the chapters are well named so you can kind of dip in and out as you wish. And I really felt like there are lots of things I didn't know that I found out on that website. So I will link you to that. And then I think I'd be remiss if I didn't send you to a photo of Mary's typed rebuttal to the existence of the Black Mammy statue.
2: On YouTube, you can watch a documentary called Dignity in Defiance, A Portrait of Mary Church Terrell. It starts off mostly centering around her home, which still exists. Her home is on the National Register of Historic Places, but it's not uh, refurbished yet. It's owned by Howard University, and they had plans to refurbish it. But you get to see it, it and go inside. And Joan Quigley was in it, who wrote that biography that we talked about before. Her grandson is in it. It's nice. You know, it's always nice to see the places.
1: That is. Still Uh, no drunk history as far as I can tell. But again, they have horrible indexing, so
2: it could exist if it does. Please (laughs) let me know. There's a new podcast out called Ordinary Equality. It tracks the history of the Equal Rights Amendment which did start during Mary's life. We kind of hopped over that particular part. It was written by Alice Paul. We really need to cover her because she has quite a few things that we should (laughs) celebrate. But it's hosted by a woman who is a former Mormon. She looks at the history of the Equal Rights Amendment through her lens as a former Mormon and current human rights attorney. It's not dry. It sounds kind of dry. I listened to a couple episodes. It's brand new. And I subscribed, so I thought it was really good.
1: And you know, for, as far as I'm concerned, last but not least, I know I have mentioned this at least twice during this podcast, and I think Mary Terrell would really, really enjoy the sentiment that the Satellite Sisters say about modern day women not letting things slip, but to stay noisy. And they have a, a store, and this is one of their themes. And there's all kinds of merchandise that you can buy that say, stay noisy. So I get no kickbacks from this merchandise at all. But I think that is a just a brilliant and pithy, short sentiment. Here I am saying I'm not responsible for educating fools or whatever. And that's really long, but, but short and sweet. Stay noisy. And I think that's a sentiment we can all get behind and that Mary Terrell would enjoy.
2: Yes, I completely agree. Okay,
1: nothing else. And in closing, I would like to read to you part of a statement that was read at Mary Terrell's funeral that was written by First Lady Mamie Eisenhower. For more than 60 years, her great gifts were dedicated to the betterment of humanity and she left a truly inspirational record. Her life was the epitome of courage and vision and a deep faith, an example worthy of emulation by all who love their fellow men. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends about us or leave a review for us on iTunes. For those of you who are London-based or London adjacent, we would like to invite you to join us on June 20th in your fair city. We are going to take a Thames dinner cruise, a five-course menu on a three-hour cruise through central London. Susan and I will be there and many of the American visitors we have brought to your fair city will be there, so please, if you would like more information on joining us for the Thames evening Tour, just go to likemindstravel.com and click events, and you will be able to find more information there. We hope to see you. In addition to the regular Pinterest board about our subject, I also have a suffragist board that kind of covers that whole period, both in Britain and in America. And don't forget to join the lounge, that is where all the action is. Just go to our Facebook page, The History Chicks, and click on the button that says join group. The song in the middle of the episode today Is Persistence by Made of Wood And the end song is In Your Face by Brad Sucks And there's a couple of words In Francais Shall I say But I beat them For radio edit purposes That's the first time I've actually ever done that In an end song But it's perfectly safe to listen to at this point I was barely for something evil to say of people to be
0: antagonized. And you said to me it's not a good strategy. You should grow up try to act like you're civilized.
2: I explained that I just valued sincerity. You should go yourself and then try to die. You were sick of it.
0: Mother,